and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast where we wade out into the deep bog of Scottish history, nature and mythology in the hopes of spotting a rare or endangered story. I'm Jenny, a piece of sphagnum moss. And I'm Annie, a lovely little bog pool, thriving with wetland life. In this episode, we're exploring one of my favourite places in the Highlands, the Flow Country. This low, flat and boggy area often gets overlooked in favour of the mountainous west coast. But today we're going to learn that this bog has so much to offer if you just embrace the squelching. Yes, I have to admit that when I first moved up to the Highlands, I blasted right past the flow country while chasing mountains. But uh, oh my, Annie, how glad I am that I have slowed down in my old age. Ah yes, Jenny, the wise old age of 30, (laughs) where you swap your hiking boots for some wellies and listen to the whispering call of the precious and unique bog ecosystem. I swapped to Crocs, actually. I I like feeling the landscape flow between my toes. I wouldn't trust the landscape not to betray you and suck the Crocs off your very feet, Jenny. Well, luckily for me, this landscape isn't home to any Crocs. In fact, some would have you believe it isn't home to much at all. This is a very common misconception that riles me from head to waterlogged toes. It's actually an incredibly important and ecologically rich environment, filled with history and folklore. So get your crocs on and let's journey into the flow country. The Flow Country is the name given to 200,000 hectares of land in the far north of Scotland. 200,000 hectares is 2,000 square kilometres, or 722 square miles, which, in case you were wondering, is about the same size area as the island of Lewis and Harris, or the island of Tenerife, interestingly. Ah, two very different islands with the flow country in common. Who'd have guessed it? Wikipedia. (laughs) But why, Jenny? Why is it called the flow country? Which part of it is flowing? Are there lots of rivers flowing with joy? Little streams flowing with mirth? Lots of ponds flowing with frogs? Where is the flow in the flow country, Jenny? Um, I don't know, but I'd love to see a pond flowing with frogs. It sounds kind of terrifying and alluring at the same time. (laughs) That's Old Testament right there, Jenny. (laughs) Well, yes, there are happy rivers and many mirthful streams, Annie, and I'm sure there's a lot of frogs hiding out in various ponds. But it's not actually named after the flow of these waters. The landscape is essentially flat and completely waterlogged meaning that it is incredibly wet and marshy. And the Old Norse word for wet and marshy is floy. I think I'm saying that right. I'm not sure. It's very hard to find the pronunciation of Old Norse words online. (laughs) (laughs) But this floy country has, over time, morphed into flow country. And this reflects the incredibly marshy landscape that it is. And so much more, Jenny. Within this glistening, waterlogged marsh, 
we can also see the historic Norse influence in the area. So for anyone wondering where the flow country is, it covers parts of Caithness and Sutherland. These are both counties in the far north of the mainland highlands and are areas with very rich Norse heritage. Sutherland means land to the south, which may seem a little bit strange considering it's the far north of Scotland. But this area was the southern portion of the Norse earldom. If you imagine the Vikings holding and ruling the northern isles of Orkney and Shetland, which are closest to Norway, then they see the very tips of the mainland as their southern realm. Ah. It's a nice way to think about how people centre their worlds on the places they know and whatever's closest to them. And it gives you some really interesting peripheries. Now, the Vikings arrived on the shores of Shetland and Orkney in the 8th century. And this part of Scotland remained under Norse control in varying degrees of power for around 600 years. During this time, they extended their control south from Orkney to mainland Scotland. This included the modern-day Caithness, which translates to Headland of the Cat People. Oh yes, finally I have found my tribe, the Cat People of the North. Meow. Meow, meow, meow. <laughs> no catnip for you. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's not much of consensus about what Cat People really means. We know that the Cat People were Pictish folk who would have lived in this area when the Vikings invaded. But... Why were they called cat people? The Pictish tribe of librarians who love the three C's, cardigans, crochet, and cats. That is just half of our listener base, Jenny. And you, Annie. <laughs> so true, so true. You're like the queen of that half of the listener base, and I'll be <laughs> the king of the other half. <laughs> <laughs> the crocs. I know who'd win in a war. Yeah, crocs or cats, it's a fight. <laughs> Pick your side. Anyway, despite not having any crochet and a very disorganised library system, our Caithness folk were called the Cat People. Cat may refer to the legend of Crunye, a story which appears in early medieval Irish writings. Ketch was one of the seven mythical sons of Crunye, who would eventually come to rule over part of Scotland. The legend goes that Crunia had seven sons and they would divide Scotland between them and rule over their own little regions. And Ketch drew the stick that had the bog at the end of it so he was sent up to Caithness. <laughs> and so we can say that these Picts are living in the domain of Ketch, which then becomes Caithness. And indeed, his father Crunia it's connected to the Gaelic word for picked, which is crunioch. So it's all, it's all interwoven. Hey. Mythological origin tales are the backstories we give our communities when we don't really know what happened. <laughs> However, though legends, the stories give us these words to be able to define a region and a people, which is cool. One scholar has suggested that cat is a tribal name based on the animal, 
but I've not been able to find much to support this suggestion. I mean, either way, I think I'd still be pretty happy with these people, even if they're not real cats. You know, just take me back. Just take me back, please. (laughs) I want to live in a tiny mud hut on a bog with cats. You don't belong. And the constant threat of Viking invasion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, interestingly, the Gaelic name for this area is Galiv, which means among the strangers. Now, this refers to the Norse who had settled in Caithness and how different they were culturally to the Gaels. It's really close to the Scots word golach, which is used for describing earwigs, the horrid wee bugs with the distinctive pincers, or anything that has a fork in it, so like a forked stick. Like a cutlery drawer. (laughs) Sorry. And then it's also a slightly insulting term for a person from Caithness. I read a suggestion that Caithness folks had earned this name because of the cliché idea of Vikings with their horned helmets. Ah, horned like pincers of an earwig. I see what they did there. Horned like the historical inaccuracy of a horned helmet. They were for drinking people. (laughs) (laughs) But I just love that these place names are giving us the different tapestry of cultures that have woven themselves into this boggy landscape throughout time. Ah yes, the boggy landscape. The flow country is actually at the heart of a much larger area of blanket bog, and in total, this boggy landscape covers 400,000 hectares, or two Tenerifes. Alright, two Tenerifes worth of blanket bog. (laughs) That is a lot of blanket bog. It's a very big blanket. It'll keep you very snugly in the winter. And from me saying that, I realised that I have no idea what blanket bog is. So Jenny, please explain, what's a blanket bog and how did it get here? To truly understand this wonderful ecosystem, we shall have to travel back 10,000 years and sit on the edge of a retreating ice sheet. In its heyday, This ice sheet covered much of Scotland for thousands of years. But its time is up as the climate is shifting and growing steadily warmer with each year. With its retreat, we see the high mountains and deep valleys carved by glaciers on the west coast. But on the east coast, the land is very low and flat. And it's breathing a sigh of relief as the last of the ice leaves. For now, this scoured and barren landscape can start its long journey of providing life. As a parting gift, the ice sheet has left vast swaths of ground-up till and sediments, the remnants of the solid rocks it has been happily pulverising for the last millennia. These sediments are the start of early soils, and some incredibly hardy plants are able to extract nutrients from them. Fast forward a quick few centuries, and the climate is now warm and mild, and grasses and sedges have established themselves all across the landscape. Not so barren now, eh? What's a sedge? A sedge is like a type of grass. You know, it's not a grass because it's a sedge, but it's very similar to grass. (laughs) 
Would I be able to tell the difference between a sedge and a grass if I met them both? Um, it, if they were wearing balaclavas, no, but otherwise, yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> As these plants go through cycles of life and death, they create deeper and more nutritious soil, and this allows some lovely trees to come sauntering up the country. Aided mainly by the wind, ash, elm and alder trees take root in these lovely nutritious soils. And what do you know, there's a lovely forest flourishing in the far north of Scotland in no time. But, as you know Annie, this episode is not about the forest in the far north of Scotland. For this forest did not last for too long. After about 2,000 years of development, the climate began to shift once more. And the warm and pleasant climate that would have been similar to the south of England now slowly began to cool. Bad for forest, good for bog. The forest ecosystem was not suited to the new, colder and wetter climate. And soon, the shallow soils became waterlogged and inhospitable. The trees all slowly died. But the cold, watery grave of one species is another's cold, watery wonderland. Enter the era of the mosses. Oh, while I'm sad to see the young forest go, and I will miss it, I do love it when the mosses take charge. They have a much softer rule. All hail the moss. Soft, squishy, and here to stay. Because over the next 2,000 years, the mosses spread far and wide over the dead and dying forest, slowly breaking it down as much as possible. Though, to this day, ancient stumps can still be found preserved in the deep peat bogs of the flow country. And this deep peat is the key to the blanket bogs. And moss is the key to deep peat. Because even after death, the mosses do not just leave, for they do not break down and degrade the same way that other plants do. This is caused by a few factors. The first is that in this new climate, there's a lot more rain. The second is that the bedrock is really flat and it doesn't allow for easy drainage of this rain. Thus, leading to the third factor that the ground is almost permanently saturated with water. Throw in the fourth, that the bedrock is acidic, resulting in overall acidic conditions. And the fifth, that it's really cold. Okay, so cold, wet and acidic conditions mean that the mosses won't break down. Precisely. Plus the sixth factor, mosses use chemical compounds called phenols in their cell walls and these are quite difficult to break down, especially in the climatic conditions laid out by factors one through five. The ecological processes that usually work to break down dead organic matter cannot function in these conditions. And so, instead of breaking down, the dead mosses just start to pile up. New moss grows on top, eking out whatever nutrition it can. And over the centuries, this cycle continues, and the dead moss builds up, layer on layer, year after year, century after century, millennia after millennia, until eventually, deep 
peat forms. This is an incredibly slow process. Peat forms at the rate of about one millimeter per year. In the flow country, the peat can be as deep as 10 meters, which, considering it's taken over 8,000 years to form, doesn't really seem like much, but in the grand scheme of peat, ah, this is very, very deep. Now, from the micro scale of the tiny growing mosses to the macro scale of this entire landscape blanketed by bog, it's really quite astounding. So many tiny plants have contributed to this blanket bog, the size of two whole Tenerifes. <laughs> it is a truly unfathomable number of tiny plants that have lived and died to create this landscape. There are thousands of years of life in each boggy hollow, but because the mosses still remain in this dense, dark peat, the carbon they took from the atmosphere whilst living, no matter how many thousands of years ago, is still locked up in the peat. It hasn't been released back into the atmosphere like the carbon in organisms which do decompose, meaning that this blanket bog is a huge carbon sink. It contains a massive amount of sequestered carbon. And if the carbon is all stuck in the peat, it's not in the atmosphere, which is good, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because we are already seeing far too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is contributing to the human-caused global climate crisis. Yes, exactly. So we must protect our peatlands at all costs. Peatlands store twice as much carbon as the world's forests, despite covering a fraction of the area. One hectare of peat can store up to as much as 25 times more carbon than a hectare of trees. This number is on the extremely high side, and having worked in forestry, and specifically the carbon sequestration side of forestry, I would say it's more like six times more carbon is stored in peat than in forest per hectare, which is still, it, it dwarfs the forests. Blanket bog covers almost a quarter of Scotland, so you can just imagine how much carbon our wee country is locking up. Oh, it's locked it up really tightly in a chest made of peat. <laughs> the mighty, mighty power of moss. Oh, I do love a bit of moss, Jenny. <laughs> There's something so ancient and safe about the mosses. Well, they are, Annie, because these primitive little plants have been around since before dinosaurs roamed the earth. And they reproduce using spores. There are 977 species of moss in Scotland, and many are able to survive quite happily in the harsh conditions of the north. These are mainly sphagnum mosses, soft, squishy and spongy sphagnum mosses. These mosses can hold up to 26 times their own dry weight in water. They've been to the gym. <laughs> yeah, they can lift, let me tell you. <laughs> but it means that they are able to soak up immense amounts of water, which is a great form of natural flood prevention as water that would otherwise run off into overspilling rivers is instead absorbed by the magnificent moss, 
which is very handy. It rains lots up north. Sphagnum mosses are the foundations of this complex ecosystem of strange little plants. My favourite is, of course, the butterwort, a curious little succulent that has evolved a rather surprising way to survive in the nutrient-poor conditions of blanket bog. Does it survive by eating the sandwich crumbs of enthusiastic hikers? Alas, no. This is far more predatory than that. It's intense. You see, the butterwort secretes a sticky substance onto the surface of its leaves. And then, when an unsuspecting black fly happens to take a rest from annoying every other living thing on the planet, and lands upon the butterwort, it becomes stuck. The more the fly struggles, the more the sticky mucus that the plant secretes traps it further in its deadly little succulent sticky prison. Once it's secured, the butterwort then secretes digestive enzymes which break down the fly. Once it's dissolved, the little fly corpse enough, it is then absorbed into the leaf through tiny holes leaving only the exoskeleton of the fly on the surface. It's like a Venus flytrap, but with a much cooler name, a butterwort. Wow, that is uh, fascinatingly grim. I can't believe there are all these carnivorous little plants just kicking about in our bogs. I thought that stuff was reserved for tropical rainforests. Yes, they can also digest pollen that lands on them from other plants. So technically, they're omnivores because they're eating both animal and vegetable. My grandfather would really approve of their diet. (laughs) They're also not the only wee plant that survives like this. Sundews and bladderworts have evolved similar mechanisms to entrap and digest unsuspecting insects. Oh, And adding to the feel that the flow country is a gnarly prehistoric landscape in miniature are my favourite animals of the area. Because while there simply isn't enough food to sustain a population of large terrestrial predators in the peat bogs, there is more than enough to support a stable population of dangerously lethal little hunting machines, dragonflies. I thought you were going to say midges. (laughs) No, but luckily for us, dragonflies eat midges. So, mon the dragonfly. (laughs) Dragonflies evolved 300 million years ago. That's 150 million years before birds. Take that, you feathered fiends. Wait, wait, Jenny, what's wrong with birds? (laughs) Well, they're not dragonflies. (laughs) (laughs) And... They can only move their two wings up and down at the same time like amateurs because dragonflies can move their four wings in independent pairs, meaning that these awesome insects can hover, glide, fly forwards, backwards and sideways, all right? When was the last time you saw a seagull go sideways, Annie? Hmm? I've seen seagulls doing somersaults mid-air when a sausage roll is involved. <laughs> that, that is fair. And uh, also something seagulls and I have in common. <laughs> but interestingly, the darting and unpredictably acrobatic flight of dragonflies 
made lots of folk very wary of them. Despite not having a sting or bite, traditionally, these insects have not been looked upon as harmless and beautiful, but rather untrustworthy and dangerous. While there's not much direct folklore about the dragonfly, its various Gaelic names provide some insight into the wee beastie. We've got spider snake, blazing fly, bull snake, and venomous bull serpent. Jenny, 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 I love that you take these incredibly literal translations from the Gaelic and find them amazing Mm -hmm. and say that's how we know that there's lore about these little creatures. Whereas the English is a combination of the words dragon and fly. (laughs) It could not be a more incredible monster than the most powerful mythological beast there is the dragon and the most irritating insect that we hope the butterwort is going to gobble up for us, the fly. Nah, Annie, nah. These Gaelic names are painting a picture of a terrifying ancient Greek chimera, a beast with the head of a snake, the body of a bull, and the terrifying spindly legs of a spider. And the whole thing is in blazing flames. It's terrifying. A dragon and a fly journey. And I'm literally imagining a fly with dragon-sized wings, all right? It's nothing special. <laughs> it, would get, it would get eaten by a butterwort in minutes. <laughs> I would never go to the flow country again if I thought that this thing was living amongst the peaty pools. Both literal takes on the word are terrifying. Well, maybe it was a warning, Annie, because as we learnt in our Will of the Wisp episode... Getting lost amongst the blanket bogs can be dangerous, and perhaps creating terrifying-sounding flying creatures aided in keeping people away from the danger. Hmm? I think the dragonfly is just a shrunken version of the spectacular mythology. Like That's how I always imagined them. Hmm. So they took a dragon and they shrunk it to the size of a fly. Because when you look at them, they're mar- such marvellous, bright little creatures. Mm-hmm. And their colours don't look like they come from this world. They've got that real iridescent colouring that you only really see in some other beetles and on very special shells that you find on the beach. Yeah, and despite the Gaelic names for the dragonfly, they are completely harmless as well. And while there are a number of dragonfly species all over Scotland, there is one that is only found by the wet bog pools of the flow country, the alluring azure hawker dragonfly. And like you were saying, Annie, it has this wonderful iridescent azure blue striped tail and the way the sunlight catches it as it's dancing around, it is, it looks like something out of, you know, a mythological story. It's really, really beautiful. And it can get pretty big as well because they get to about 6.5 centimetres in length. Which is the size of a small dragon. (laughs) But it does mean that they're easy to see. And so when you do see them, you can follow them as they dart jauntily through the air, hunting all sorts of wee beasties. This particular species loves the wee shallow bog pools that form in the depressions of the blanket bog The ideal one, right, would be just 20 centimetres deep 
and filled with a thick, murky, peaty detritus. Mm. That sounds dreamy, Jenny. Oh yeah, forget mud baths, Annie. Peat bog baths are the future of the spa. I can imagine those dragonflies just chilling there with their mimosa. And it's funny you say that, because there's one loch in the flow country with waters which are stained dark amber in the tannins of the peat, but yet are still considered healing. Oh, interesting. I currently have a very sore neck, so tell me more. I'm listening. Well, it was once common practice for people with a myriad of ailments to travel from all over the north of Scotland to the shores of Loch Manara. Now, they would arrive in the twilight on the first Monday of either February, May, August or November. For these are the magic days. Obviously. The moonlight, if it wasn't blocked by a blanket of thick grey cloud, would illuminate the cold waters of the loch, making them twinkle in a deep, peaty, welcoming glow. At the stroke of midnight, the sick and injured would wade out into the freezing water of the loch and... No, you're losing me. Like, dipping my toes in the loch water, I can do. Drinking the loch water, I can do. But I'm not an immersing myself in cold loch water fan. Well, I made it seem like the loch was frozen. It's not really frozen. It's just very cold, very fresh water. Yeah, no. Like a nice glass of water from the fridge. No, you're not, you're not bringing me back. <laughs> so once deep enough, these people seeking healing would plunge themselves into the water three times. Nah, I'm gone. I'm done. I'll just suffer with my sore neck. It's fine. <laughs> you are such a coward, Jenny. Yeah, a warm, dry coward. With a sore neck, granted, but... So after submerging themselves in the fresh waters, these brave folk seeking a cure would drink some of the peaty loch water and then, as they were wading back out, throw a halfpenny behind them as a thanks for the healing power of the loch. Wow. And this is all happening at midnight in February by the shores of a loch in the far north of Scotland. It's a lot. Well, technically, yes, but in reality, no. (laughs) Though it was considered that all four of these months had a Monday where you could be healed, people tended to only take the slots (laughs) in the summer months of May and August. These were significantly more popular times to visit than in the winter months of February and November. You've got to have a really sore neck if you're going in February or November. (laughs) 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 But no matter which month they chose for their bathing, these dunkers must have completed the entire ritual and have left the shores of the loch before sunrise, or else the healing would not happen, and it would render the midnight dunking meaningless. These are very impressive lengths that people are going to for the healing waters. It's intriguing, the ritual of it, the ceremony. It gives meaning and power. And who knows, Jenny, maybe freshwater swimming would help you with your sore neck. I don't know about that. But (laughs) as with all folk remedies and healing, we must caveat this by saying that this is not a legitimate way to cure a sore neck. 
so instead seek medical advice from professionals, in your case Jenny, a chiropractor. And although freshwater swimming has been proven to have many health benefits, as you say Jenny, it's not for everyone. So if you're thinking about starting freshwater swimming, there's lots of advice online on how to do it safely and how to take all the precautions to make sure you can get the most benefits of it without any of the drowning. (laughs) And just a tiny warning on the um, small print of this folkloric cure, (laughs) there's never any need to throw coins in any loch because that's just a way to upset fish. And you don't want to be doing that. Fish can really hold a grudge. You'd be surprised. (laughs) But I love that magic healing wells are dotted all over Scotland. And it's funny how water is often seen as healing and how some wells and lochs are singled out specifically as having these powers. Well, as with a lot of these superstitious or sacred spots... There's a good story to why this small loch in the midst of Blanket Bog in the far north of Scotland has become renowned for its healing abilities. Ooh, I'm in. Hit me with this story. Gently. A long time ago, before cars and caravans and the North Coast 500, there was a strong old woman who lived in Strathnaver. She lived in a charming thatch cottage on the banks of the River Naver, where the finest salmon in all of Scotland swam. Well, they thought they were the finest salmon, but, you know, other salmon might disagree. They settle it in a shinty game once a year. Despite living alone, the old lady's house was never empty, because she was often catching this delicious salmon. But she also had people visiting. There was always a steady stream of folk popping in to have a blather with her, a cup of nettle tea, and often they were asking for the old woman's help. It was known that our Kaliach in her little thatch hut was a healer, and a good one at that. From persistent coughs to broken bones, she had a way with the sick and the wounded. She always had a cure. We're calling her a Kaliach, which is just a Gaelic phrase for an old woman. Often an old woman of the people. Nowadays, the Kaliach is the wee woman in the pub that everyone knows. And she's always great crack. Now for this woman, there had always been in her family this healing power. This ability to find the source of another's pain and release them of it. However, she was not born with this skill, but instead she was gifted it. It was her inheritance, when her grandmother was lying on her deathbed. She gave our then youthful healer a white stone. Her granny thrust this white stone into her young hands and held it closed with her old hands. In her dying breaths, She told the secrets of how this stone was the key to the family's healing powers. She warned that her granddaughter must guard it carefully, use it wisely, and live in every moment compassionately. And this our healer did. She learned the ways of the white healing stone. She charged it with her empathy and her care for her community. 
For many, many, many years, she used it to help those who came to her in need. She became old and weathered and beautiful, as her granny had been, with endless twilights written in her face. But unfortunately, not everyone who came to her was looking for healing. It was common knowledge that the Kaliak received her powers from a magic stone, despite her trying to keep it quite secret. And tragically, whenever there's a powerful object, there are people who want to use it for themselves. And one of these people was a garden of Strathnaver. One day he knocked on the healer's door and he demanded that she hand over the stone to him, for he had some powerful spells that he wished to cast and he wanted to harness the power of her white stone for his own benefit. To this, the Kaliach said a very firm no, and she slammed the door in his face. Now, being a man who had not heard no enough in his life, this threw the Garden of Strathnaver into a wild fury, and he stood outside her lovely wee cottage for a while, screaming and having a tantrum and stamping his feet. Our Kaliach was wavy, though. This put her on edge. She decided that her only option was to hide the stone for a while, and so she sewed it in to a stealthy little pocket in the lining of her travelling cloak, and headed north to the shore of her favourite wee loch. When she arrived, she was planning on hiding the stone somewhere safe. But little did she know that the Garden of Strathnaver had followed her. If she'd have listened carefully to the wind, she would have heard his disgruntled muttering under his breath. And as she was looking for the right place to leave the stone, the Garden of Strathnaver jumped out and again demanded that she give him her stone. Refusing, the Kaliach tried to move away from this man, but he was so enraged, and he decided that he would get the stone through any means necessary, no matter how evil. He lunged at the Kaliach and dragged her into the water. She was feared for her life, but she was more feared for what such a nasty man would do with such power. And so, in her final act, the Kaliach flung her beloved stone deep into the waters of the loch, crying out, May it do good to all created things, except a garden of Strathnaver. Oh, this poor healing Kaliach. A little heart. And in her final breaths, her last words were the Gaelic, Monare, Monare which in English means for shame, for shame. Ever since this tragic day, this loch has been called Loch Manara, the loch of shame. And while the healing power of the white stone has infused the waters of the loch, no garden of Strathnaver can ever be healed by them. And that's the backstory to Loch Monara. Gosh, I said hit me with it gently, Annie. That was, this is traumatic. This is a tale of terrible greed and extraordinary power playing out in the flow country. Yes, mm, it's a horrible story. 
But while she was unable to pass the stone on through her family, the Kaliach passed the healing force of her magic rock onto the generations of folk who would come to this loch. And I think that's the beauty of power when it's held by compassionate people with honour in their hearts. And it's also a lesson to those who seek power for the wrong reasons, because there's no punishment for violence and greed like an intergenerational curse. Ah, there's nothing worse than getting an intergenerational curse on your family. Imagine being the source of an intergenerational curse, and all of your descendants look back on you and just think, Shame. Shame. So, there you have it. If any listeners are Gordons of Strathnaver, then you better stay away from Loch Manara. So Jenny, I thought we could end this fabulous episode by looking at one of my favourite Caithness monuments. I must add in here that it is possibly the most aptly named site in all of Scotland, nay, nay, the world. Wow. I first came to this place shortly after returning to live in Scotland, when my mum and I were exploring the far north, and we were about 10 miles before we got into Wick, and we drove past a very big sign labelling this monument. And as soon as I saw the sign, I thought, I have to see if this lives up to the hype. I knew we couldn't drive past without turning off and exploring this phenomenon of a place. I love brown sign hunting. In Scotland, the tourist spots or sites of interest are all on brown road signs and sometimes you see something you just can't resist and you end up flinging a U-turn and exploring a weird little corner of the country. And this impressively large brown sign read these glorious words. The Hill O'Many Stains. The Hill O'Many Stains. Does... Does the hill need chucked in the washing machine with some detergent? What's going on here? (laughs) No, not that kind of stain, Jenny. Stain (laughs) as in stone. Um. It's a hill of many stones. All right, yeah, this sounds like my kind of hill. I love hills. I love stones. I love lots of things. I love the word many. Let's do this. (laughs) This is everyone's kind of hill, Jenny. The hill of many stains does not disappoint on its amount of stones. There are indeed many of them. (laughs) It is formed by about 200 stones, which are arranged in at least 22 rows, running down the southern slope of this low hill. And it's it's human-made, right? These have been placed there. Yes, of course. How else would you get many stains upon a hill? Have you never seen a scree? Scree is many stains on a hill. (laughs) No one is laughing at that, Jenny. Don't don't try to diminish the power of the hill of many stains with your (laughs) scree slope. This is so much more than a scree slope. Okay, so in my mind's eye, I'm picturing like 200 big, tall standing stones all lined up on a hill and it looks amazing. Why is this site not better known? Well, it's true. These stones are standing tall and erect, though none of them are more than a metre high. 
So some critics may suggest incorrectly that this site is less of a Bronze Age mysterious glory because it does kind of have the vibe that it could have been made by a couple of enthusiastic farmers with a wheelbarrow. (laughs) Oh, come on, Annie. Don't undersell it like that. It's the quantity of the stones, not the size that matters. <laughs> the Hill of Many Stains represents one of the largest and best preserved of this type of monument in Scotland. There are multiple rows of small to medium sized upright stone slabs, all doing their job perfectly. These were erected by the inhabitants of Caithness and Eastern Sutherland around 4,000 years ago. And last time I checked, they didn't have wheelbarrows 4,000 years ago. So this monument is an incredibly impressive feat of human strength and endurance. The Hill of Many Stains is close to loads of other breathtaking archaeology, including the Grey Cairns of Camster and the Cairn O'Get. So this is part of an astounding quilt of ancient historic buildings on the fringe of the flow country. Historic Environment Scotland, who managed the hill and all its stains, highlight this site is difficult to date. Archaeology suggests that the majority of these types of stone arrangements are from the early Bronze Age, so it is a hill of many ancient stains, although we can't quite pinpoint exactly when these stains were put on the hill. Adding to the mystique, we don't really know what this site was used for. However, the stains upon the hill are clearly well curated. The placement of these stones is incredibly intentional. Whatever their purpose, they were placed in their rows and aligned to be facing the same way, with meaning and a role to fulfil for the Bronze Age Caithnesians. We just don't know what that role was. We may not know, but there are a few brilliant ideas suggested for their use. In the 1970s, Professor Alexander Tom floated the idea that they were intended to calculate the precise movements of the moon. So it's possible that they were used to chart the flow of lunar or solar cycles, or other cycles. Or perhaps they were used for religious ceremonies or significant gatherings. Or a really big game of guess who. So your man that floated these theories, Professor Tom, also created some interesting ideas about a special unit of measurement called the megalithic yard, which is exactly 83 centimetres. Now, he felt this was a very important measurement because it appeared at many sites he visited. He'd measure the space between different stones and find this 83 centimetre mark really hit the spot. However, mainstream archaeology has brushed off the megalithic yard as a kind of pseudoscience, suggesting it's more likely that these stones are being arranged with a normal pace between them. So you just need to take a big step to know where to position your next stone, which for me makes more sense. However, Prof. Tom floats this theory that this type of consistent measurement was used at sites like the Hillamani Stains. But I think that this 83 centimetre thing is more of an archaeological red herring. 
It's funny because if there wasn't a sign explaining the hill or many stains, you would look at the monument and just think, well, this is just a hill with lots of stones on it. But the placement of each stone is a cause for debate. There's so much we wish we knew about the positioning of these ancient stones and it kind of kills me that we're never going to have the actual answer. It's always going to be theories and hypothesis and archaeological red herrings. It's very challenging, especially since this site has been shrinking. Though we have about 200 visibly aligned stones nowadays, it was definitely once a larger site with some suggesting that it could have been over double its current size. I don't know, Annie, that's uh, two Tenerife of standing stones. <laughs> <laughs> However, unfortunately for this site, there's local folklore that there was once precious things hidden under these stones. Gold. And this led to some of the stones being disrupted, moved, or taken away. However, there's not any evidence of any gold at all under these stones. So please do not go looking because that's a heritage crime. You'll do time. Yeah, and the last thing you want is the heritage police on your tail. Don't joke about the heritage police, Jenny. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I'm really sorry. I don't want to offend any heritage police. <laughs> I feel like you're the heritage police, Annie. <laughs> It's just a badge I have when I need to get in somewhere without a ticket. <laughs> I think for the Hill of Many Stains, it's more a metaphorical gold. Because these stones are sublime treasures in their own right. I find a gold twinkle in my heart when looking at such a great selection of ancient stains. <laughs> but even if you do not heed our warnings about the Heritage Police there are far greater powers at work protecting these stones. You see, at some point in the last 4,000 years, a powerful protection spell has been woven upon these stones, one that will smite anyone who interferes with their perfect placement, symmetry and stoneliness of the hill. A farmer from Bruin once naively went against the local wisdom that warned of the punishment that would befall any fool who messed with the many stains. Steal a stain from the hell, O oh many stains, and it will stain your soul. Nevertheless, this foolish farmer went wandering amongst the rows of ancient rocks and set his sights on a grand stone. He began to wiggle it like a tooth, and soon he was yanking it up from its age-old home in the dark soil. The stone was stiff and angry. It didn't want to leave its perfectly aligned spot upon the hillside. Yet, this greedy farmer persisted and prized the stone up anyway. He put it into his wheelbarrow and wheeled it back to his farmhouse. When his wife returned home that night, it was to a brand new lintel above the fireplace of their kiln. But ancient stones are wild beings who cannot be tamed. For when this farmer lit the fire, the stone suddenly burst into flames. It channeled the energy of stone yet to be formed under the crust of the earth and burned so bright the farmer feared it would burn his house to the ground and burn the humanity 
from his spirit. Yet, it burnt with a primitive fire, the kind that comes from ancestors so distant their names are lost, but their presence remains between the lines of curated rock on the hill O'Many stains. It blazed with a supernatural fire, a fire of the fairies, elves, giants and trolls who inhabited the site when the ancient people eventually moved into buildings of wood and turf. The stone burnt all night until the sun rose, and then, in the first early morning light, the stone gave the farmer an unspoken chance at redemption. It ceased its blaze, and cooled enough for him to touch it. He was terrified, but he knew what he had to do. With trembling hands, he loaded the stone into his wheelbarrow and took it back to the hill o' many stains. He made certain to position it in the exact spot he had taken it from, and he left the hill with such a burning feeling of shame that he was forever marked by it. Great wee tale. This is a recurring theme in folklore of the far north. The Flow Country has some of the most incredible archaeological sites in all of Britain. And local lore suggests that this could be because the fairies or spirits would punish anyone who meddled with these sites. However, I think the amount of stone structures in the far north proves to us how popular a place this was to live. Neolithic and Bronze Age people built beautifully complex buildings and sites in Caithness and the Far North. These folks made their own centre of the world, out of stone, sweat, toil and community effort. Though the stains of the hill o' many stains may be small, they are mighty. They show us that a society came together to make this incredible place. They are the work of a group of people who really wanted their stones to be in perfect lines. And they nailed it. It's funny, the older I get, the more I realise how much ancient people had their priorities sorted. If we opened up a mindfulness retreat where a group of people just spent a few years perfectly lining up some small to medium-sized stones to the lunar cycles using only early Bronze Age technology. I think we would all come out of it with a much better mindset on life. And back pain. Well, I know a loch that can fix us up. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to Stories of Scotland. We really hope you enjoyed one of our many dips into the flow country. Anyone who travels the North Coast 500 will encounter this spectacular bog and the layers of natural and archaeological treasures held by Caithness and Sutherland. If you're up there, I also recommend checking what's on at Leith Arts Centre as they are a wonderful organisation and they put on some really awesome events. Peat bog is one of the most underrated landscapes in the world. There is nothing quite like a squelchy, spongy adventure. And there's majesty in this waterlogged, carbon-sinking land. 
Unfortunately, much of the peat in Scotland has been degraded, drained and planted on with trees. And this is really bad because it releases a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. As well as this, the warming climate is bad because it's drying out peat bogs, which is meaning that all that carbon that is currently held in the land is being released. And again, this is just speeding up the cycle of climate change that we're seeing. So it's really, really important that we protect these landscapes and that we understand how important they are, even if they do make your feet really wet. The rich and unusual odours of a bog are cleansing to the sinus and the heart. Even if you're not a bonny bog bagger like me, next time you pass by one of these stunning wetlands, slow down to think about all the wee wonders that are born from bogs. And watch out for the bullhead snake. She means dragonfly. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening and joining us on this marvellous journey to the bog. If you enjoyed our show, please do leave us a glorious little five-star review telling us your alternative name for a dragonfly. I want something that's heavily bog-themed and also quite mythological. That's what I'm aiming for. Anyone with puns wins. (laughs) A massive thanks to our incredibly kind and generous supporters on Patreon. You can join these wonderful people and help us make this show by signing up at patreon.com slash stories of Scotland and for a wee monthly fee you can get access to some bonus content whilst also helping Jenny to keep her boots dry. Yay! (laughs) A big toast to our new patrons who are Yanni, Monica, Jim, Radhika and Finn, Sue, Max and Dee. I like to think of you all as my favourite bird, who is a popular resident of the flow country, the merlin. Now, the merlin is the UK's smallest bird of prey, petite but powerful, and an amazingly fast hunter. The merlin is a swift falcon of fury, living in the rural parts of the far north as both a resident and a visitor sometimes when it wants to come on its holidays. One of the romantic things I love about Merlins in Scotland is that their favourite nesting spots seem to be deep amongst the heather. They like flowers in their homes. Otherwise, they do sometimes move into pre-loved homes of other similar-sized birds. They see an unused nest and they claim squatters' rights upon it. (laughs) In Scots, merlins are sometimes called rock hawks, which I love because for me, merlins are the rock and roll stars of the bird world. They've got some real musical talent and they know how to throw a party. Since we're in the flow country, let's see ourselves, our little birdie merlin selves, through the lens of Norse mythology. The Vikings see us as we warrior birds. And we collect up our old feathers and we give them to the Norse goddess of love, fertility and war, Freya. Yes. She wears a cloak of falcon feathers that can be used for her to travel betwixt the realms of the living and the dead. Perhaps she can even use this feather cloak to become a falcon herself and hang out with us in the wetlands. We'd throw her a great party. 
together, we drink Falcon Island iced tea yes. and Cosmopolitan Falcons. <laughs> or if you don't like the hard hock cocktails, you can sip on a Falconocino. A Falcocino. We play several bog-based games, including Guide the Weary Traveller to Safety. That's when we're being kind falcons. And, of course, our favourite falcon triathlon. Okay. We're not as good on the bike, but we do great in the running. We're very comfortable in the bog, and we never at all feel awkward. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, and I think on that note... <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, Slanjava. Slanjava. Where you swap your hiking no, no, boots Annie, Annie, for wellies. I need this to be fun. All right. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta give me some welly with this. It's gonna be. <laughs> this is an episode of arm swinging fun. <laughs> <laughs> The floor country. <laughs> okay, here we go. <clears throat> One time when I was hiking the Appalachian Trail, I came out of the forest and there was like a pond across this road, but the road itself was black and moving. And I was like, what on earth is happening? And I looked closer and it was entirely covered for like, the. I mean, as far as you could see along the road and tiny little frogs all hopping along. And it was really hard to cross the road because there was no way to cross it without standing on little toads. It was sad. That's 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 not a happy story, Jenny. Not, it starts off really cool, and then it's just really sad. Yeah, that's not that's not a joyous blooper story. No. That's a story of how Jenny killed a thousand baby frogs. Okay, was, my feet aren't that big, right? I've only got size fives. <laughs> <laughs> this is overwhelmingly deep peat. Like when we voted out the forests and voted in the peat, I didn't expect it to have such a long government. <laughs> Oh, it's really clinging on. <laughs> <laughs> what I love thinking about with the butterwort is that it's like comfort eating under the blanket bog in the same way that I comfort eat under my duvet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So are you secreting things and trapping flies? <laughs> <laughs> that these awesome insects can hover, glide, fly forwards, backwards and sideways all right when was the last time you saw a seagull go sideways annie hmm? i've seen seagulls doing somersaults mid-air when a sausage roll is involved <laughs> that, that is fair and uh, also something seagulls and i have in common <laughs> i once saw my friend shelly who does mma fighting um punch a seagull to keep her yes. sandwich and the seagull still won. Are you even from the Highlands if you've never punched a seagull? <laughs> I just want to make it clear. People don't go around punching seagulls. But seagulls do sometimes try to swoop down and steal your food. And that's when you have to decide whether you're the kind of person that lets a seagull take your food. Or if you're the kind of person to have a fight with a seagull. And, and then eat the disgusting Food that the seagull has flapped its wings over and had partially in its beak. I know what team I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Mmm, it's the dragonfly spa. 
<laughs> the dragonfly bog jacuzzi. It sounds dreamy. Is that a dragonfly? Oh my god, it's <laughs> coming for me. It's a bullhead snake. <laughs> oh, interesting. I currently have a very sore neck, so tell me more. I'm listening. I'll tell you more, but you just need to sit up straight because it will do wonders for your neck, Jenny. Oh god, I wonder if my mic just cat caught my whole back cracking when I sat up straight. <laughs> <laughs> it's an example of a noise that's too loud for the microphone to pick up. <laughs> and he stood outside her lovely wee cottage for a while, screaming and having a tantrum and stamping his feet. If he was alive nowadays, he probably would have bought Twitter. But eventually, he left. Oh, Kalia! 